0: Uh, In a few moments we'll kind of get into this amazing, beautiful story that we're looking at through uh, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth. Uh, But just wanted to kind of pick up actually where we left off two weeks ago with uh, a practical outworking of where we got to in the uh, series. So we'd looked at the whole reputation of Ruth and how we, as followers of Jesus, are those that aren't looking to build reputations because we've already got our reputation built. Uh, In our devotion to Jesus out of his devotion to us, it causes us to live, therefore, in what we've celebrated and worshipped this morning of this deep sense that we're no longer kind of slaves looking to prove that we're good enough, but rather we're children of God, knowing that we're fully loved and accepted. And therefore, that fundamentally means that we get to live differently in the world. It means that we get to live not building reputations, but revealing a reputation. And therefore, a practical outworking of us doing that was two Sundays ago, with the lead up to the ashes, uh, we had to kind of help the cricket grounds kind of get ready uh, for their part, they're playing. And so we transformed this room, and we literally cleared this room, a load of other space upstairs. And then we went a bit extra. Normally, we do that. We'll do that this morning. I promise you at the end, we'll clear this room again. Um, but... The thing we did is we went a little bit extra. And during uh, big matches, this room gets transformed into a real ale bar, whatever you think of that. And what we did was actually transform it for them. And so we brought all of their stuff back in and set it up for them. Not out of a sense of us wanting to build a reputation, but rather out of us living out the reputation we know that we've got. Now, this is the email we got that evening uh, from the kind of senior member of staff that oversees all of that team, including some of the setup of what needs to, need to go on here, she re- writes this: "I just wanted to say a huge thank you for putting up everything, putting everything back today. I can't explain to you how much that has helped us. We've been really up against it in the last four days, and that act of kindness really helped lift all my team's spirits." I just want to share that with you because sometimes we can think, well, we just do this, and does it really matter? It really does. Very small things that can cost us very little, that are motivated not out of a sense of what can I prove here, but actually out of that sense of the kindness I've been shown, I now get to reveal. Fundamentally shine out. And that's what it did for this individual. Now, subsequent to that, just I think the beauty of being in a ground, uh, which is surrounded by lots of different things going on, we then get to live in life uh, with them. Now, uh, along with just the amazing news of the ashes, of the kind of kindness that we can reveal through putting out some chairs and bars, uh, and that kind of transforming someone's life and the team they lead, Actually, it's also the moments where we get to stand with individuals within the ground. And uh, we've actually been asked if we could stand with an individual that probably, if you're a regular oasis, you'd have met once, maybe a few times. Uh, and that's Claire, who uh, operates the kind of security for the, and the reception uh, for the ground. And Claire, tragically, during the ashes, her sister, who is pretty young, Uh, younger than me, therefore I always deem that as pretty young, as I'm young, so she must be pretty young, um, tragically died, suddenly, out of nowhere, leaving a husband and three children. And um, as you can understand, that's rocked Claire's life, and it's rocked all of her colleagues' lives, uh, as they care about her. And they actually approached uh, us as a church and said, could we pray for Claire, and could we pray for them as a team? These are people who wouldn't say their lives are centered around Jesus and yet something of what they know of us say actually in these moments I know people like you is what we need. I think what a privilege and so I wondered if I could just lead us in praying for Claire and the team here. Is that all right? Just if you feel comfortable just close your eyes so we don't get distracted. Jesus, we just come before you and we thank you all that we've celebrated in this morning is true for every individual on this planet. That Jesus, your greatest desire is that you would lift their sights to see that you're enough in and through every situation. And Jesus, we just recognize that we do not understand fully everything that's going on through Claire's mind at the moment, through her uh, wider family's mind, through the children that have been left, through the husband that's left. And we we just can't fathom it, God. And God, we just ask in this moment, would you be so merciful to them as a family? We pray, would you come and be the great comforter that you truly are? And I pray, would you comfort Claire? Would you comfort the children and the husband? Go on and pray for the, the team here at the ground. I pray, would you come? And as they've asked us to pray, and they know we're praying today, I pray in this moment, would they know something of your presence, Jesus? Holy Spirit, I pray I praise you that you come and draw alongside us as this great comforter. And I pray that they'd come and know your comfort, that even the darkest moments, you can come and break in your light. And so we ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, what I want to do just before, still we get into Ruth, it's kind of changing gears slightly. We've got this backdrop of what we're looking at. and I It's the summer. I know that different ones of us will be kind of going on holiday, been on holiday, kind of changing the rhythm slightly. And we'll be looking for... um, things that we could read. I wanted to recommend a book to, uh, for you, a book to you, a book that I've been I've read is exceptional, Christ Our Life by Michael Reeves. Uh, if you've read The Good God uh, by Michael Reeves, you'll just know that that is excellent. This, uh, I would say, is a bit better, dare I say that. I, I think just what he's written here is is really just the center of our faith. It's Jesus, and I promise you, if you read this, you can't speed read it. It's not a read where you're going to sit on the beach thinking, okay, I'm going to get through this in an hour or two. It's one that you're going to have to daily pick up, and it will nourish the very deepest parts of you. If you don't know who Jesus is, this book will reveal him to you. If you do know who Jesus is, this book will revolutionize what you think and how you live with him. And so I want to really encourage you, please do purchase this, Christ Our Life. It's available on Amazon. Uh, Shouldn't probably recommend them, but it's the easiest way I found to buy books Uh, e book and a physical book. Uh, And as we always say, if it's good enough to recommend Oasis, it's good enough to give away. So if anyone wants the book, please say now. There we go. To be honest, I heard a lot of me's over there, but I saw Sinead, who's just there, just shoot her hand up before you could even say me. And so, Sinead, I'm trying not to throw that at your baby, but I'm going to throw it to Bill, who's going to pass it without hitting your baby. Um, so here we go then. Let's get into Ruth this morning. Ruth is this incredible story. If you've been over the last uh, kind of couple of months, you know that where well we, we've got to. But I want to quickly recap because I think it's so helpful when you're in a story uh, that you recap where you've got to so that you don't just look at a section and forget the bigger story that it's part of. As so you remember, this incredible story of Ruth starts off with a family and a moment of darkness, a moment of darkness historically. That it's set within the period of the Bible called the Judges, which is an incredibly dark and horrible time. Probably one of the most horrific stories that you could read in the Bible is within this period of time. I'm not going to talk about it today because I don't want to because it's so horrible. At that point, some of you are thinking, I'm going to read the book of Judges because I want to see what that horrible story is. It's horrible. Why would you want to read it? But anyway, it's there because sometimes it's there to reveal how horrible life can get. And within this period of darkness, you find that there's this moment of darkness to this family where they find this period of time where it's just incredible famine. There is not enough to go around. As this family decide, we need to get out of this situation and make their way out of the the nation, out of the area, the land that God had given them into a neighboring land. Say, maybe our rescue can come there. So they go to this Moabite area. And rather than finding rescue there, they actually find more darkness and despair. So first we find that the uh, wife of the husband is left a widow because her husband dies. So she's left just with two boys. They then marry and she thinks maybe we're on the up, maybe it will be okay. But then they die as well. And so you're going to get this starting story literally within the first 14 verses where you find, okay, it's a pretty dark period of time. There's famine and then there's death and more death and more death. And into that situation, you find this lady called Naomi, who's the remaining wife, who has now these two daughter-in-laws. She thinks, there's there's nothing I can do here. There is nothing good that's going to happen my way. It is hopeless. In a total point of despair, she says, how can it get any worse? I'm going to go back to my homeland. So that's what she does. And she tells her daughter-in-laws not to bother coming with her. One of them realizes her heart is for her and thinks, okay, I won't then. I'll stay where I am. I'll stay with my people and with my family. The other daughter-in-law called Ruth says, actually, no, where you go, I'm going to go. I'm devoted to you and devoted to your God. Therefore, I'm coming with you. And at that point, you realize that maybe this story of such darkness, maybe there's a dark background in order that light can really blaze out. And that's what you discover. And so we then find that the next part of the story is this brief encounter where we find that, Ruth makes this decision that she's going to do all she can, having gone with Naomi, returned to her homeland, returned to her hometown of Bethlehem, to actually say, well, here we can't just survive on nothing. We've got to make our way. And so Ruth makes her way, because it's harvest time, to where the harvesters are, to this enormous field that's made up of lots of different fields, owned by different people, in order that she can gather what's left over by the harvesters, thinking, if I can just gather that, then maybe we can survive. And in the field that she chooses to gather in, she has this brief encounter by, with this guy called Boaz. This individual had heard about Ruth, heard about how she'd shown kindness to Naomi, been willing to leave her homeland and come and, and live with Naomi where she is. And he's just bowled over by her, and her kindness stimulates his kindness. And he tells her, actually, don't just gleam just the edges of what you see. Actually, I'm going to make sure you purposely can gather what you need here. I'm going to give you over and above what you need. And from that brief encounter, Naomi gets to hear that Ruth has met Boaz. And she says, man, this isn't by mistake. You understand, Boaz is linked to our family. In actual fact, he's like our guardian redeemer. He's the one who actually could get us out of the situation we're in. And this is a day and age where actually if you weren't married, it was incredibly hard as a woman to, to make a life work and to not live in abject poverty what was provided for by God was actually that actually the, the wider family would take care of a widow and all of her offspring. And would kind of take that wife, that widow, to actually be their own wife. And redeem, pay, bring back, pay for the land that they owned. Pay for them as an individual. And cause them to inherit everything that they had. And Naomi says, oh, this Boaz guy, he, he's that for us. So they hatch a plan and we find this curious incident in the night where... Ruth makes her way in the middle of the night after the guys, literally, it is just the guys have been separating the wheat from the chaff and have pretty tuckered out, had a good meal. And then Ruth goes and makes this unusual, highly unusual marriage proposal where she lies on the feet of Boaz, uncovering his feet as he's asleep. And then, in that moment, as she lies on his feet, he kind of stirs, thinking, why is it a bit cool in here? Because someone's uncovered his feet. And then sees this girl there and saying, what are you doing here? And she says, it's me, it's Ruth. Would you cause your blanket to now cover me? And in that moment where she asks for his blanket to cover her, she's saying, would you cause your protection and your provision to be over me? Would you be my husband? And he says, but not just for me, for my whole family. And Boaz is just stirred by who she is and says, well, we've got to get this sorted. And we ended that part of the story with Naomi having heard everything that had gone on, hearing that um, Boaz has said, actually, there's there's a plan to, to kind of put this into action. I really want to marry you, but actually there's one who has a greater claim than I to be your guardian redeemer. Therefore, we need to give him first shot. He says, but I, I'm not going to let this kind of loose theme, I'm going to make sure that this happens. And Naomi gets to hear all of this and she ends chapter three and we end that part of the story with her saying, Boaz will not rest until this matter is settled. And it's at that point where Boaz is filled with unrest, as we looked at a few weeks ago, in order that Ruth would know rest, that we pick up how he's going to action this. So chapter four, verses one to 13 is what we're going to look at and we're going to unpack it along the way once we've read the whole uh, uh, 13 verses even. So verse one, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, "Bite yourself, and you removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow. Now Elimelech um, is the dad, Kilion and Malon are the sons. As my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. hometown, today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. If you like, the whole of the story has been building to this point. Building to this point, it started with this prayer of Ruth of Naomi for Ruth that she would find rest of both the absence of conflict and the presence of comfort. And that how Naomi could see that would gonna ultimately happen was through getting married. And so her greatest desire, chapter one, was that Ruth would get married because that would provide for everything. And this is the culmination, if you like, of that prayer of Naomi, where suddenly we find that this is all worked out. Because what happens here is this is a story about marriage, but it's a story much bigger than just marriage. Because what happens at this point is this becomes a story about the redemption of Ruth. It's a story of redemption. But I'd also like to say it could also be known if the shoe fits. Mm -hmm. See, what we have in this story is this most intriguing moment we find at the very center of the story, the kind of hinge point of where it all goes, there's a piece of footwear on offer. A piece of footwear which she, footwear that seems to stand for something. And as we look at this story, what we're going to find is actually, there's this amazing story of redemption being posed and being told. And in it, as we look at this story of redemption of Ruth, we're going to be able to then see how it's a story that we then get to share in, but how it all hinges on a piece of footwear. See, the story starts because we know that Ruth is in need. Naomi and Ruth are in need. They need need to be protected and provided for by a redeemer. But that redeemer is one that we're not even told about. We're told that there's this ultimate individual. that isn't Boaz, it's someone else that should redeem them. And we're not told of their name, not because Uh, their name could never be mentioned like in harry potter the one who cannot be named it's not because of that it's just because for the storyteller here it's of no interest because actually this individual in the end has a very minor part he has an even minor part to a sandal the sandal can be named that's how major part the sandal has but this individual he has a very minor part therefore we don't even need to know his name See, this is a story ultimately where Boaz is looking to redeem Ruth, but he wants to do it honorably. And in terms of the redemption that's needed, it needs to have a plan. And so Boaz, through this story, puts into effect a plan. You see it through from verse 1 to 5. So firstly, he puts in the plan of positioning himself to a place where he knows he can get this quickly sorted. And so he positions himself at the town gate or city gate, which is the place where the movers and shakers would have gathered. And he positions himself there, not out of a sense of unease. He isn't kind of hopping from one foot to another, thinking, how's this going to work out? How's this going to work out? He sits down. He's fully in control of this plan. So he just sits down and waits for the other individual who has more of a stake here to come along. Sits and waits. And then we're told, as if by magic, the shopkeeper appears. No, As if by magic, this other redeemer appears. Now at that point, the storyteller puts in these moments where is this a coincidence, or there is there one who's behind the scenes painting the picture here? See, this isn't just a coincidence. God is at work here. Boaz sits down. The other guy comes along. Boaz invites him to sit down, and so he does. The plan is starting to be put into effect. The next thing Boaz needs to do is he needs to gather some people. So he gathers ten elders, probably ten because that's what would have been needed in that moment to authorize what was going to happen. But then also a crowd seemed to gather because this was the Movers, Shakers area. So ten elders have sat down with Boaz, who's a bit of a man of influence, and this other individual who must have had something about him to have been the guardian redeemer. And so the crowd looking in, maybe they were at the market, because the market probably would have been housed around this area. They suddenly look at what's going on there and go, what's going down here? Let's go and have a peek. And so suddenly a crowd gather around to see what's going to happen. And we find that actually what Boaz is looking here isn't for a moment of legality, isn't for a moment of judgment, isn't that he's asking 10 elders to sit there to judge over these affairs. This is rather a social matter. This is a matter where we're going to find by the end that he actually says to these elders and to the crowd that have gathered, you're my witnesses here. You're the proof of what's going to have been agreed here. As he puts his plan into place, positioned himself got those around him to be the witnesses. And then he turns to this guardian redeemer who has first picks on Ruth. And he does this very, very clever two-stage plan. The first plan is this, and the first part of the plan is he suddenly makes mention of something we've never heard of before this point. He says, actually, naomi has got a plot of land that she's putting up for sale. At this point in time, we could be thinking, what? I thought she was really poor. How come she didn't then use this plot of land before? Well, that question isn't answered. It's just there. It seems as though Naomi did have a stake in this land, but she was unable to action it. And Boaz, using the cleverness of what he wanted as the final destination here, because he wants to marry Ruth, but he knows he wants it to kind of be legit. And so he offers something first. He says, actually, I know there's this plot of land. Do you want this? The guy cannot believe it. Boy, I could buy that off a widow. She's going to take anything for it. I buy that offer her, and then I add it to my portfolio. My portfolio of however many other fields I've got. I add that in. And actually, I know that Naomi's well in years. She isn't going to be having any other children. Therefore, I've got no kind of concern about her children ever having a stake in that field. Or dare I think about it, my field's. Therefore, the only way this can go is on the up for me. I can add this to my my portfolio and benefit my family. So he's like, yeah, I'm in. But this is a two-stage plan. Boas is not an idiot. Boas then drops the clangor, if you like. The, the bit of the, the puzzle where you suddenly think this, this isn't going to work. This bit of the puzzle isn't part of that puzzle that I was thinking. And he says, actually, when you get the field, have you heard? You also get the young girl, the young one who could still have a kid, Ruth, and she'll be your wife. At that point, the guardian redeemer number one says, "Uh uh-oh, I don't want anything to do with this. And then it all becomes about the shoe. See, the shoe stood for authority and responsibility. In this time, people would use their feet to signal things. And so it would be said, if you owned a plot of land and you wanted to offer it to someone else, you'd kind of say, actually, you're buying this plot of land off me, and you'd kind of take your foot off the land and then place their foot on the land. of saying, now that's your responsibility. That's You have authority over that land. And in this part of the story, the shoe, the piece of footwear, the sandal, was a mark of who had all authority and responsibility. And in this moment... For the number one, premio uno, guardian redeemer, when he realized that this was a two-stage process, that it wasn't just the land, it was also Ruth, he thought, this is way too costly. I don't want this. Because actually, Ruth is young. And therefore, I need to take her as my own. And actually, any offspring she had or has would not only have a stake in that field, therefore I'm losing out, because I've just paid for something I'm not gonna benefit from. But also, they would have a stake in my stuff. That's way too costly. And he quickly takes off his sandal. And you can kind of see him just take it off, throw it quick, and says, I I I don't want this. You have it. You said you wanted it, it's all yours. Take it. Boaz's plan had worked. His desire for Ruth his want to protect her, his want to provide for her, but to do it in the right way had worked out. And in that moment, he takes the shoe, the sandal, and says, yes, I'll pay the cost. Yes, I'll take the responsibility. Yes, I will provide and protect Ruth and her whole family. In order that we can get to the part of the story that is incredible, he says, I'm going to redeem Ruth. It's a story of redemption of Ruth. So you see in verse 13, they kind of finishes off and says, and so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. The whole story had been building to this point. I was saying actually this redemption took action. It wasn't just settled at a city gate. It wasn't just that he said actually does everyone witness that now I have responsibility to do this. That was the kind of registry office moment of saying actually witnessed before here. I, I'm going to take her as my wife and everything else. But he still needed to do something. He still needed to do something about it. He still had to take her as his wife. And in that moment, as he took Ruth as his wife, he redeemed her. And that redemption, if you like, became about three different things. It became, firstly, about marriage for Ruth. It meant no longer she was on her own. She was now under the protection and provision of Boaz. It became about a future blessing, a future blessing that we hear spoken of and prayed for by the witnesses and the elders who kind of heard everything that had gone on in this exchange between Boaz and the other redeemer. When, it, when they hear and say, oh, Boaz is taking responsibility for Ruth. They don't bother about the land. They say, we're about Ruth. They say, oh, we want to pray for her that she'd be just like Rachel and Leah. In other words, we want to pray that she would be fruitful. That she'd have many children that are able to build a nation. because That's what Rachel and Leah were known for, building a nation. And she says, oh, and we want her to be like the mom of Perez, Tamar. I haven't got time to look into that whole story, but again, what they're saying there is saying, Peres was the one who was the founder of our people, the founder of our town, Bethlehem. But his mom, obviously, was the one that brought him into being. His mom became the part of everything we now enjoy. We want your wife to be one who becomes part of a bigger story. That she brings fruit for everyone. See, this redemption of Ruth through the marriage to Boaz, was an invitation to a future blessing of being part of God's bigger story. Of understanding it didn't stop with just her. It was going to flow out from her to hit, to impact Naomi, to impact not only Naomi's life, as we're going to see next week, but actually the lives of people throughout time and history. That part of her redemption was to become part of God's bigger story. If we go back one. Slide, please, just before we get to the bigger story. And then lastly, she got redeemed and she married Boaz. We could skirt over that. We could think, oh, yeah, 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 she married Boaz. No, no, this is the big thing. This is the ultimate in terms of her redemption. Because she could have known the first two things. She could have known marriage. She could have had prayed future blessing by the nameless guardian redeemer who just did his duty by her. Yet she didn't. This wasn't a timeshare prize moment. You know when you get the envelope through the the post from some timeshare organization says, guess what, you've won a holiday to Jamaica. No way, this is amazing. And it says, all you have to do is send this amount of money and turn up to this meeting. And you think, this isn't a prize. This is like a really rubbish gift. See, Ruth could have been redeemed and known marriage, could have known future blessing but it could have felt like a timeshare gift where she thinks, think, but this doesn't seem to give. It isn't quite what I thought it was going to be because the individual who's redeemed it did out of duty. Rather, she had Boaz. Boaz, who, when in her first moment of meeting him, her, kind of showed her such unbelievable kindness. This Hebrew word hesed that we've seen week in, week out, was revealed and encompassed by who he was an individual. Hesed means loyal, loving, devotion. Through kindness. And it was that that Ruth was experiencing when she knew that she was getting married, not to someone who was doing it out of duty, but rather someone who'd done everything out of this loyal, loving, devotion, and kindness towards her. Fundamentally changed everything. And you see, it's that that we need to get a hold of because her story of redemption is ultimately our story of redemption, which kind of earths it and allows us to get to this point quickly, I promise, to communion. Because this story is quite magnificent in its own sense. But if we leave it there, we think, oh, that's a nice story. And yet, God doesn't tell nice stories for the sake of it, He tells stories in order that we understand something more about ourselves. You see, Ruth's story of redemption is our story of redemption. See, all of us were in that moment of need. That moment of need that, like Naomi, got to that point of thinking, it just feels like my life's cursed. Nothing goes right. For us, it was actually every one of us was under that moment of need through a curse, a curse that started in a garden, the very beginning of the Bible, you see it, where everything's good and God says, actually, you have freedom here. Just keep me at the center. Don't touch that tree in terms of knowledge of good and evil, because that's going to break everything. And humanity did what humanity's always done, which is what I did, what you did, which is to say, actually, God, maybe I know better. Maybe I should live with myself at the center. I can make sense of this. And so what happens at that moment when humanity take figuratively an apple and say, actually, we're going to eat of that fruit and say, we're now going to know of good and evil. It breaks it all. And we find out that there's this curse that then enters the world. It wasn't how it's meant to be. And we find this curse then means that there's then separation between humanity and God. A curse then means that there's then brokenness in between uh, humanity itself, so with one another, but a brokenness also within ourselves, a brokenness within the whole of creation. In order, what was meant for our good is actually something we struggle against, something we continuously harm by our want to just be self-centered. What's this, something that we continually continuously seeking to say, how can we rule over it? And yet it's fighting back. So it became separation, brokenness, and this curse of death that no one could do anything about. A need that then God said, actually, maybe, that, maybe you think you can do something about it. And so God then gives the law. And so we find the Old Testament is this book where, this story where God then says, well, well, you try and make yourself right then. You try and get rid of the curse by actually becoming like me. And what we find is that we cannot do it. Through story after story, we find that it's true for our own lives, that actually who God is is 100% perfect and right. We can never match up to. Therefore, we always fall short in our own efforts. And therefore, there was a need for a plan. And so we find that God then puts his plan into being, that the moment where he says there's a curse in Genesis 3 out of how we've sought to live with ourselves at the center, he also says there's a plan to redeem everything. So he says to Eve, look, out of you will become one, a seed that will break the curse. We find a bit later in the story of the Old Testament, we find that he then calls this one man Abraham and says, oh, from you, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky, but from you, your descendants, there'll be one. It will be a blessing to all nations. Then get to the prophet Isaiah who then talks about there's going to become this moment where there's going to be this servant who's a king, who's going to come And actually, he's going to do something about the the curse because he's going to to take it upon himself. And in taking the curse on himself, he's then going to provide for us healing. Nothing we could do. The shoe didn't fit for us. The shoe had to be given to someone else. Which is where we get to with Jesus. We find that he... Took the shoe. He took the responsibility in the authority. So if we go to the next one, Shoe. Galatians three thirteen says this Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. God has said in Deuteronomy, anyone hung on a tree was cursed. And Jesus said, Actually I know how I can deal. God said, I've got this plan to deal with the whole of the curse that humanities live with. And that's by taking it on myself through going to a tree and taking on that curse in order that everyone could know they could be free of it. An extraordinary, redemptive moment where Jesus said, I'm going to take this shoe and all the cost of it. I'm not shying away from it. I'm not throwing it to someone else. I take the shoe. That then means that through his death, he then deals with it. He deals with our curse. If you don't believe me, just look at the accounts of him on the cross. We find that on the cross, we see that he's separated. The curse of separation comes on him. So much so that he gets to this point. For a moment in the whole of eternity, he who's only ever known the, God, the Father's love, he who's known such intimate connection with the Father and the Spirit, suddenly gets to this point of saying, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone? Because in that moment, he becomes separate. In that moment, as we see him on the cross, we see one who's marred beyond the description and likeness of any human being. One who is completely broken as he takes on our brokenness. And in that moment, one who on the cross dies. In a day and age where people didn't die very quickly on the cross, many people were crucified, many people had their legs broken in order to speed up the process. Yet Jesus didn't, he died quickly painfully but quickly why because he was dealing with the curse and to deal with the curse it wasn't only enough that he dealt with the separation It wasn't only enough that he dealt with the brokenness he had to deal with the death in order the most amazing thing would happen the cross wouldn't be the end point that in him rising from the dead he could then offer us redemption so that Ruth story could become our story, that we get to know redemption, so we get to know marriage. I think, oh man, I struggle with that. I struggle with the fact that I'm going to be married to Jesus. That's a bit weird. And yet the whole of the Bible tells this story. There's so many ways that God tells the big story of who he is. And one of the ways he says, actually, my people, the people of the earth, are like a bride, a wife to me. And I'm like their groom, I'm their husband. I'm continuously trying to pursue them, and yet they rebel and kind of do other things and go off with other people from me. Then you get the New Testament, that's the whole of the Old Testament in just a sentence. Then you get the New Testament where you find that Jesus comes and says, oh, I'm the groom. I'm the groom who's willing to pay any cost for that bride. And Lord, there's this moment in a marriage ceremony that it mirrors everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross, which if you ever get married and you're ever a groom, it suddenly brings a new authority and power and weight to what you're taking on. Where's well, this moment where actually the husband and the wife will say to each other, all that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. So I have to remember, because even on my wedding ceremony, I kind of got those words messed up. But... All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. And what we're mirroring there in that moment is what Jesus said in his redemptive resurrection. He said, you're now mine. You're married to me because I want to say this statement over you. I want to say all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. In order that you would come under my protection and my provision. In order that you wouldn't know separation but belonging. In order that you wouldn't know brokenness but wholeness. In order that you wouldn't know death but life. Because you understand that I unconditionally love and accept you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. But like Ruth, it wasn't just about marriage. It was also about this future blessing that we too, like Ruth, would become part of a bigger story. A bigger story that's actually God's desire isn't just to redeem humanity, but to redeem the whole of creation. So it's become part of God's plan to redeem everything, which we're going to get to look at a bit next week. But ultimately, like Ruth, it wasn't just about those two first things. Oh, they're really good. Ultimately, it was about the one we're redeemed by. It's that we were redeemed by Jesus. Jesus. We were redeemed by one who didn't do it out of a sense of duty. Didn't think God the Father, the Spirit, think, actually, who's going to take the tap on this one? Oh, I'll do it. Better. No, no, it was out of love, it was out of the ultimate expression of Hesed, loyal, loving, kindness, devotion, that Jesus went to the cross in order that he could reveal his love for us. In order that we'd know that when he says, All that I am, I give to you, all that I share, All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. See, I still can't it. 19 years on, still getting it wrong. Still getting it wrong. You know what I'm saying? Out of not a sense of duty, but out of a sense of love. Which means that what we most gain through redemption isn't belonging. Isn't. A sense of wholeness isn't a sense of life and life eternal. The thing that we most get through our redemption in Jesus is Jesus. And boy, is he enough. Paul writes into the Colossians and puts it like this. Colossians 1, this is from the message version because I think it just aptly allows us to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. See, we look at this son, Jesus, and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this very moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From the beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. That's Jesus. You see, this is the Jesus who redeemed us. This is the Jesus who says, all that you are For all that I am. Have we settled for something tiny in who Jesus is? Have we settled, dare I say say it, for a sense of, oh yeah, now I belong to God. Now I know what it is to be whole. Now I know I've got eternal life. Have we just settled for that? Or have we started to camp out at Jesus' feet and say, no, I settle only for him. Because I tell you what, if we settle there... Understanding that we bring all that we are, all our brokenness, all our aloneness, all our kind of fears and doubts. What we get in him is everything. And we get to explore for eternity the fullness of who he is. So roomy is he that the whole of the universe finds its place in him. All that we are for all that he is. And what Jesus did is he then gave us this moment, like any wedding. Any wedding has a a banquet, a feast. He says, one day there'll be the banquet and feast over all feasts and banquets, where finally we'll meet face to face. Finally, you'll be as I always intended you to be. Finally, you'll see me in the fullness of all I am. And boy, are we going to party in that moment. But until that day comes... I'll leave you another feast, a very simple feast, a feast of just literally a loaf of bread and a cup of juice, in order that you'd understand that whenever you eat it, whenever you drink it, what you're reminding yourselves of is that I redeemed you, not out of duty, but out of love, that I went to the cross. More than that, I rose again in order that I could offer you this myself, so that we could eat bread, drink juice, and say, All that I am, Jesus all my frailty, brokenness for all that you are. We're going to finish by taking communion.